Welcome to episode number 19 of the Reformation Roundtable. My name is Joe Stout, and today we are going to be talking about uh, continuing in our look into eschatology, and we're going to be talking about the Antichrist, the Man of Sin, and the Beast, all three different uh, ideas or people or things or what exactly they are. Are they different? Are they the same? Arcee's going to take us through what I consider to be a very uh, convincing and profound argument on those three individuals and what we know about them from Scripture, Revelation, First John, uh, as well as Second Thessalonians. Uh, Reformation Roundtable is a group of, of uh, men who are seeking to plant a Reformed Church in Lewis County, Washington, in the Centralia Chehalis area. And so we've been meeting weekly to discuss different theological ideas behind Reformational theology. We would like to plant a distinctly and unapologetically Reformed Church, a church that embraces the glories of the Reformation, and we are doing that by exploring different theological concepts. And so the last few weeks we have been looking at eschatology. We're going to do so again today. And next week we'll finish up our our uh, look into eschatology. And so RC is actually going to give two talks, one on the Antichrist and one on the beast. And then there will be a Reformation Roundtable discussion that follows. I hope you enjoy the teaching. And please, please reach out to us to join us if you would like to uh, be a part of what we're doing. You can go to lewiscounty.church. So it's lewiscounty.church. Uh, go to the contact form and just send us a message, and we would love to have you be a part of what we're doing. We want to see the glories of God come to Lewis County in a way that they're not currently being represented, and we'd love to have you be a part of it. Hope you enjoy the teaching by RC and the discussion that follows. Thanks very much. Today we're going to look at one of the most fascinating and yet controversial subjects that refer to the last times, and that's the question of the identity of the Antichrist. And in fact, it even begs the question when we talk about the Antichrist, because one of the questions that we encounter with respect to this idea of Antichrist is, is there one Antichrist or are there many Antichrists? Is Antichrist singular or plural? The uh, second question we encounter is, is the Antichrist a person or an institution? And an even more important question is, the New Testament speaks of the Antichrist in John's epistles, and in Paul's letters he speaks of the man of sin or the man of lawlessness, and in the book of Revelation, John tells us about the beast, who's known by the number 666. Now again, are we dealing with three different subjects, the man of sin, the Antichrist, and the beast? Or are all three of these concepts interconnected and interrelated, converging on one identity? Now, those are some of the questions we'll look at in addition to the $64,000 question, and that is, who is the Antichrist, or what is the Antichrist, and how are we expected to recognize it or him? Now, as I say, there's fascination in the 
worlds and, in fact, sometimes preoccupation with the concept of the Antichrist. It's a uh, common uh, feature of interest in the world of the occult. We saw the film smash hit Rosemary's Baby, which was linked to this concept of the Antichrist, and the popular prophetess or seeress of the 20th century, Jean Dixon, prophesied several years ago that the Antichrist has already been born and, as I speak, is currently maturing into adulthood and will soon uh, make himself known publicly. So those are some of the things that we encounter when we're looking at this question of the Antichrist. And the first thing I want to do is look at what the New Testament says specifically about the Antichrist, because the only place we really find out anything directly about Antichrist in those terms is in the first epistle of John. And so let's look at 1 John chapter <clears throat> 2, beginning at verse 18. John writes these words, Little children, it is the last hour. Notice the time frame reference that is used here by John. Little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. Now, obviously, in this context, John is speaking of many antichrists who already have come. And he's describing antichrists, plural here, in terms of those who have committed the sin of apostasy those who had once professed faith in Christ, but then left the Christian community and repudiated uh, their confession. And so here, John links Antichrist with apostasy. <coughs> in chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, John gives us more information where he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now already in the world. Now, he talks about the coming of the Antichrist. He speaks of many, many Antichrists. And he talks about the spirit of the Antichrist who is coming, but who is already in the world. So one thing is clear. In John's description of Antichrist, that in his idea of Antichrist, 
He's talking about something that represented a clear and present danger to the first century church. Now, let's take a couple of minutes to look at the term anti-Christ. What is significant is the use of the term anti, which comes directly from the Greek anti, which has two distinct meanings in the Greek language. Usually, and that is uh, most frequently, the term anti means against. But sometimes the prefix anti in Greek means in place of. Now, if it merely means anti, then the Antichrist is defined in terms of his opposition to Christ. He is one who is against Christ. The term, if used in its secondary sense of anti, would be somebody who subverts or seeks to uh, replace Christ as a false substitute. He is a supplanter, a false messiah. Now, we don't necessarily have to choose between these two possible meanings or renderings of the term onti in Greek because anyone, obviously, who sought to supplant the true office of Christ as a false messiah, as a false Christ, would by the same by the same action be working against Christ. And so the idea is suggested here that the Antichrist is one who both works against Christ and tries to become a substitute for Christ. That is, is a false god or false messiah. Now, in addition to John's teaching specifically, uh, using the language of Antichrist, we have the teaching of the Apostle Paul in his writings to the Thessalonian Christians in uh, 1 Thessalonians, uh, I'm sorry, 2 Thessalonians, chapter 4, beginning, we have it in 2 Thessalonians, chapter Two, I'll get it, uh, chapter 2, verses 3 to 11. Let's look at this text, if we may. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 11. <coughs> Paul begins by saying, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things, and now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth 
and destroy with the brightness of his coming. And the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now again, the context in which Paul talks about this mystery of iniquity, or the mystery of lawlessness, the man of sin, the son of perdition, is in response to trouble that was brewing in the Thessalonican community that Paul speaks of at the beginning of Second uh, Thessalonians when he says, I don't want you people to be upset by reports that allegedly have come from me. Somebody had been circulating in the church false rumors that had allegedly come from Paul. And one of those false rumors was that, that the Christ had already come. And Paul is now writing to correct that misapprehension and reminds them of what he had said to them formerly when he was in their midst, that certain things had to take place before the coming of Jesus. Now, obviously, they were expecting a very quick appearance of Jesus, and some had actually been convinced that or had heard the rumor that he had returned. Paul says, not yet, because before that takes place, we have to have the appearance of this man of lawlessness, uh, and so on. Now, let's look at it again. That day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And now he's referring to an apostasy. That's what it means to fall away, a repudiation of true faith. Now, remember the difference between paganism and apostasy. A pagan is one who is an unbeliever who has never made a profession of faith. An apostate is someone who makes a profession of faith and then later repudiates that profession of faith. That is, an apostate can only be someone who is within the covenant community, within the visible church. Uh, Benjamin Warfield is convinced that in this text, <coughs> Paul is not talking about an apostasy that will take place at the end of history in the uh, manifestation of wickedness and moral decline within the Christian church. He's talking about the apostasy of the Jews in the first century, which was a major problem uh, that is recounted in the New Testament. Christ came to his own, his own received him not. Paul had this tremendous ongoing burden for his own kinsmen according to the flesh, Israel. The author of Hebrews warns that current generation of Jewish people about the dire danger of neglecting the great salvation that had come. And so the apostasy of the Jews, or the apostasy of the Israel, of Israel, is tied to that generation of Jews who rejected the Messiah that had appeared in their midst. And that would indicate a great falling away. But then Paul goes on to say, that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, 
who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. Now, one of the reasons why biblical scholars and commentators believe that Paul is here describing the same thing that John is talking about in his letter with respect to the term Antichrist, because Paul describes the man of sin in two basic ways. He, first of all, opposes Christ. He is against Christ. He is anti-Christ. And second of all, he exalts himself above all that is God and claims uh, the right to be worshipped and so on. So that in this case, the man of sin or the man of lawlessness is one who is anti-Christ in both senses of the word anti that I uh, spelled out a few moments ago. Well, what else does Paul say about uh, the anti or the uh, man of lawlessness? That he exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, here he describes the man of lawlessness of actually being seated in the temple. Now, if those words are to be taken literally, then you have uh, one of two options. Either this occurred while the Herodian temple was still standing, or it must refer to a future event that will require the rebuilding of the temple. That's why many uh, people today, particularly among dispensationalists, believe that there will be, because there must be, not only the restoration of the Jews to the land of Palestine, but the reconstruction of the temple and the reinstitution of the sacrificial systems for the final appearance of Antichrist to take place as he literally is seated in the temple. This business about desecrating the religion of Israel and the temple of God also links Paul's description of the man of lawlessness to Jesus' Olivet Discourse when Jesus talked about the abomination of desolation, which was linked to one who would commit some kind of serious form of blasphemous sacrilege, which Jesus also spoke of in terms of the signs that he predicted in the Olivet Discourse. <clears throat> now, then Paul goes on to say, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Now, just as John talks about the Antichrist being already in the world and already working, so Paul, in his description of the man of lawlessness, this mysterious person, as being presently already at work. But he says that in the present situation, this man of lawlessness is being held in restraint. Now, one of the great mysteries of the New Testament is not only the identity of the man of lawlessness or the identity of the Antichrist, but the question of the identity of the one who restrains or the restrainer. <clears throat> now, 
one of the most fascinating uh, and I think, frankly, bizarre uh, arguments that dispensational uh, scholars bring for their view of the pre-tribulation rapture, the view that the church will be taken out of the, uh, the world before the last tribulation, the arguments I've read have gone like this, that the only one who really can operate as the restrainer of evil in this world is the Holy Spirit. So the first assumption is that the uh, restrainer of the second chapter of Thessalonians, uh, or the first, second chapter of Second Thessalonians, is, uh, is the Holy Spirit. And then the, the speculation goes like this. Since the Holy Spirit indwells Christians, the only way the Holy Spirit could be taken away, and the only way the full restraining power of the Holy Spirit could be removed from the planet would be you'd have to remove every Christian from the planet. So they see this as a, a, a sort of disguised uh, uh, teaching of the uh, pre-tribulation rapture, which I think is uh, a really unwarranted speculation. We don't know who the restrainer is. It may simply be uh, the restraints of God who restrains evil, but he, since he speaks in, in uh, specific terms of an individual, uh, some have suggested, or uh, an institution, that the restraining uh, power here is an institution like the Roman government. Or some scholars have suggested that the one who was actively restraining the man of lawlessness at this point in time was Paul himself. And that, again, it's speculation because we don't know uh, what it is that's restraining or who it is that's restraining the man of lawlessness. All we are told is that he who now restrains will continue to restrain until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Now he goes on to say the coming of the lawless one is according to the, waken, the, to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception <clears throat> among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they may be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion, etc. Now, here it seems to suggest that the man of lawlessness will be endowed with supernatural powers. Uh, giving lying signs and wonders, and will be working in concert with Satan. Now, these elements of the description of the man of lawlessness, who is already at work here, correspond in a remarkable fashion with the description that we get of the beast of Revelation, whose mark is the mark 666. So what I'm going to do in our next lecture is to focus attention on the beast of the book of Revelation. And, but before I do that, let me suggest to you that the preliminary study that we have done indicates strongly, I believe, and I would say the majority report um, in historic Christian scholarship, is that the figure of the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, and the beast in the book of Revelation 
all refer to one and the same thing. So that whatever light we can learn from the Antichrist will teach us something about the man of lawlessness. Conversely, whatever we can discern about the meaning of the man of lawlessness will tell us something about the Antichrist. And again, whatever we learn about the Antichrist and the man of lawlessness will shed light on our understanding of the uh, mysterious beast who is introduced to us in the apocalyptic literature of the book of Revelation. And again, we are left with still with the question, person or institution? Is this something that happened in the first century once and for all? Or was there some uh, archetypal manifestation of this uh, person or institution in the first century? But we can expect a fuller manifestation later on in history. These are some of the questions that remain on the table as we wrestle with the, the meaning of Antichrist. We've been looking at the mysterious figure of the Antichrist, and in our last session we considered the New Testament teaching in John's epistle regarding Antichrist, as well as Paul's treatment of the man of lawlessness or the man of sin in Second Thessalonians. And as I mentioned at that time, we see a interrelatedness between the concept of the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, and the beast that is described in the book of Revelation. And today we're going to turn our attention to the book of Revelation and its teaching regarding the beast. It's found in chapter 13 of Revelation, beginning in verse 1. We read this, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of the heads as if, it, as if it had been mortally wounded, but its deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beasts. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and was given authority to continue for forty-two months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life, of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Then we go on to uh, read more about uh, the beast in verse 11. And I saw another beast coming out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs that even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, 
And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling them who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, and the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Here is this cryptic, mysterious message. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Now, the first thing we understand about the beast is that he rises up out of the sea, and he is described as having uh, ten heads and all these crowns and all of that sort of thing. And we saw earlier that there were references to uh, the one who was alive, who was a king at this time in chapter 13, that we identified with the emperor Nero of the Roman Empire. Now, if we look at the imagery and the military power of this beast that comes out of the sea, that has the, uh, uh, the seven heads and, and so on, uh, most scholars would grant that this is obviously a reference to the military power of Rome, and that the seven heads refer to the seven mountains or the seven hills. One of the ancient uh, references that we find in the literary sources of antiquity to the city of Rome is that Rome was commonly called the Septa Montium, or simply the Seven Mountains, because it was established on seven hills. But out of this Roman Empire or Roman military power uh, is this uh, mysterious figure of the beast who does all these uh, wicked things and who is known by this strange and cryptic number 666, which is called the mark of the beast. Now again, throughout church history, people have sought to give clear identification to the beast who is known by the number 666 or to the beast as the Antichrist. And again, we see the vacillation between the power of the institution, in this case perhaps the Roman government, and the power of an institution being embodied in a single person, like a king, an emperor, or some other representative person. Because of the religious activity that surrounds this figure of the beast and the Antichrist, some have argued historically that the Antichrist will be some kind of a clergy person or a famous religious person who will seek to be a false Christ or a substitute for Christ. At the time of the Reformation, the most popular candidate for fulfilling the image of Antichrist was the Pope. 
Luther and Calvin both were convinced that the Pope in Rome was the Antichrist, that the Roman Catholic Church was the anti-Christian institution that was embodied in the one who called himself the Vicar of Christ on earth, that is, the substitute for Jesus in the church, namely the Pope, and that this was a time of unprecedented corruption in the papacy, which, in uh, fact, all historians agree upon, including Roman Catholic historians in the days of the, of the uh, Borgia popes, uh, and so on. Even by the 17th century, in the Westminster Confession of Faith, it became a, an article of creedal affirmation. It was actually included in the Westminster Confession that said that the Pope in Rome is the Antichrist. However, there are few today who would argue that uh, the biblical imagery of Antichrist or the beast is fulfilled in the Pope. Others have looked to military leaders of great power and wickedness who have emerged historically. In the 20th century, some of the candidates for uh, identification of Antichrist have been Joseph Stalin and Mussolini, because if you translate the title of Mussolini, Il Duce, in a certain way, you can come up with the number 666, and obviously, uh, the, uh, the most popular candidate in the 20th century has been Adolf Hitler because of his devastating destruction of the Jewish people and of his unprecedented wickedness. Also, if you study the life of Adolf Hitler, you will see uh, in the surviving journal entries from his own hand the occasion where he uh, made a, an entry in which he said, Today I have made a covenant with Satan. And those who were close to Hitler, some of his closest henchmen, were actively engaged in Satanism. And of course, the uh, uh, surprising military might of the Blitzkrieg and all thought that it was demonic in terms of its uh, uh, support. But again, since the passage of time, not too many people are looking now at Hitler as the fulfillment of the Antichrist as had been in previous generations. Now, again, if we follow the process that we've been examining here in terms of our study of the time frame references of the Mount of Olives uh, discourse, the time frame references of the book of Revelation, and we continue to struggle with this sense of the radical nearness of the time of fulfillment of so many of these prophecies that are set forth in the New Testament, uh, obviously, uh, it would be important for us to consider the question of a first-century fulfillment of this prophecy. Again, the man of lawlessness was said to be already at work. Two, the, uh, <clears throat> uh, the spirit of the Antichrist was already in the world, and John announced his near manifestation. And three, the language of the book of Revelation, which speaks about those things that will shortly come to pass, coupled with the very 
nature of the literary descriptive forms that we find in Revelation that many scholars say was written in a kind of code in order to protect the Christian community that was engaged in reading this uh, information from discovery and persecution. We also know that the first century church endured enormous persecution, first at the hands of the Jewish committee, community, but then secondly uh, at the hands of the Romans. And one of the most significant persecutions arose in the decade of the 60s under the authority of Nero. And it was under Nero's authority that the persecution of Christians began, and as uh, tradition tells us, Nero himself perhaps started the great fire that destroyed so many sections of Rome and turned around and blamed it on the Christians, which caused the Christians to come in great popular disfavor at that time. It was under Nero that the, great, the two great saints of the first century church were executed, Peter and Paul. Both of them were martyred under the reign of Nero and at his command. Now, if we, uh, we consider the possibility of a first century candidate and a candidate who would appear before the coming of Jesus in terms of the destruction of Jerusalem and the judgment coming of Christ on the temple and on the Jewish nation, we would be looking for somebody who would appear, obviously, before 70 A.D. If that, if that is the time frame in which we are restricted to work for the fulfillment of this concept of Antichrist, then obviously the most likely candidate would be Nero. In the ancient world, even among pagans, nobody distinguished themselves for their wickedness to the degree that the emperor Nero did. Nero's life was a life of radical violence and debauchery. He murdered several of his own family members. He castrated a boy and then, quote, married the boy. He brutally murdered his own wife while she was pregnant by kicking her to death. And uh, uh, the historian Suetonius uh, wrote that Nero devised a kind of game in which, covered with the skin of some wild animal, he was let loose from a cage and attacked the private parts of men and women who were bound to stakes. That is, part of the entertainment that he sponsored, either in the Circus Maximus or in the uh, Colosseum, probably in the Circus Maximus, was that he would get these people, men and women, have them secured at the stake, and then he would come out dressed up like a lion or a wolf or covering himself in skins and then would attack the genitals of uh, these people who were there. And so this kind of behavior was uh, extreme, to say the least. Nero began his reign as emperor in the year 54, 
Uh, his persecution of the Christian community was in the year 64, uh, and uh, he committed suicide in the year 68, 14 years after he assumed the power of the emperor. He committed suicide at the age of 31, so that he rose to power when he was 17 years old. Again, uh, more summations of the character of Nero from antiquity. The historian Tacitus spoke of Nero's cruel nature, and Pliny, the Roman naturalist, Pliny the Elder, described Nero, quote, as the destroyer of the human race and, quote, the poison of the world. The Roman satirist Juvenal spoke of, quote, Nero's cruel and bloody tyranny. And Apollonius of Tyana specifically says in his writings that the favorite nickname that people had for Nero was simply the beast. He makes this comment, In my travels, which have been wider than ever man yet accomplished, I have seen many, many wild beasts of Arabia and India. But this beast that is commonly called a tyrant, I not know not how many heads it has, nor if it be crooked of claw and armed with horrible fangs. And of a wild beast, you cannot say that they were ever known to eat their own mother. But Nero has gorged himself on this diet. And so the historical record, not from the Christian community, but from the contemporaries of Nero, from the Roman culture itself, describes consistently and constantly the bestial character of this madman of antiquity. Well, what about the cryptic number that the author of Revelation uh, warns the people to be alert to and is cluing them in to a manner in which he can be recognized, and he indicates that, the ant, that this uh, beast can be known by a number, and the number is the number 666. Now, before I explore that number, I want to also mention that, oddly, in some variant manuscripts that go way back in history of the book of Revelation, uh, there is a textual variant in this verse so that the number that is listed there is not the number 666, but it is the number 616. Now, a textual variant is usually understood to take place when the original manuscript was copied by hand by a monk or by somebody, and in the process of copying, in that laborious, tedious process of copying word for word the text of Scripture, Occasionally, a letter was missed, or uh, uh, somebody forgot to cross a T or dot an I, or a, a simple mistake uh, entered into the process. And by this careful study of the existing manuscripts that we have from antiquity, we see that these things happened, 
and, uh, and, and several examples of them. But this may be of special significance, as we shall see in a moment. In the ancient world, cryptograms were a common thing. A cryptogram was an encoded message whereby numbers and letters were related. Now, in the three major language groups that we're concerned about here in antiquity, namely Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, all three of them had systems of using their letters for numbers so that all three languages were used in cryptogrammatical ways. Uh, we're familiar with this even today, at least with respect to Latin, because we are aware of the use of Roman numerals. And no Roman numerals are simply Latin letters that have a numerical value like the Latin letter X has the numerical value of 10. The Latin letter V has the numerical value of 5. The Latin letter M has the numerical value of 1,000. And so on with D and L and, one and I and other letters that have a clear numerical value. Now, this was also true in Hebrew. And if we looked at the, uh, uh, the name of, of uh, Nero in, in Hebrew, we get the name transliterated Neron Kaiser. That is Nero Caesar. And in the Hebrew alphabet and numerology, this name, Nero Kaiser, when translated into numbers, comes to the number 666. Exactly. However, in the ancient world, the Greek name of Caesar changed from uh, Neron Kaiser to Nero Kaiser, a very slight variation in the writing, and the Greek numerical equivalency of the Greek form of the name of the Emperor Nero came out to the number 616. Well, one of the most preeminent textual scholars of the 20th century a man by the name of Bruce Metzger from Princeton. And Metzger once uh, offered the opinion that in his judgment, as the supreme textual critic in, in the world today, that his judgment was that in all probability, the textual variant in the Greek that was found in antiquity, where the number is 616 rather than 666, was an intentional, an intentional variation so that Greek-speaking people would be able to discern the number on the basis of the Greek language 
rather than requiring them to know Hebrew in order to understand this encoded cipher. We also know that uh, during Caliglia's reign and the reign of Nero, there was a rapid expansion of emperor worship within Rome. And some of the earlier uh, emperors, such as Augustus himself, were uh, given the honor of being regarded as deities after their death. But people did not practice the worship of their images uh, during their lifetime. But under Caliglia, and especially under Nero, this did occur, and it occurred by Nero's own command. Nero had his statue set up, for example, in the Temple of Mars, and enforced the worship of his statue. Also, the, uh, the people such as uh, uh, Josephus saw the great sacrilege, which was an abomination of desolation, take place when the Roman standards, which were worshipped as representatives of the uh, emperor, were brought in to the temple itself as an act of desecration of the Jewish religion. So, we see that in all of the things that describe the, the vicious, wicked, quasi-religious and military character of the beast, are seen in the actual life of Nero, leading many historians and scholars to believe that the beast in view, as well as Antichrist and man of lawlessness in the first century church, was fulfilled in the person of Nero, because it was linked to the events that were soon to take place in the destruction of Jerusalem and the judgment of God upon the Jewish people. Now, others who also are impressed by Nero's candidacy for the identity of the beast, say that at least Nero was a type of the beast and Antichrist. And those who believe that the Antichrist is still future, yet to come, say that he will be like Nero in his uh, manifestation. I think one of the things that just it was new to me listening to RC was the idea that Antichrist, man of sin, or man of lawlessness, and beast. He's making the argument that they're all the same. Is that, are you guys familiar with that argument? This is about the only position that I've ever heard that's been compelling for Antichrist, which is the idea that it's, that it's basically Nero. Mm -hmm. um, Part of why I find, I guess, comfort in it is because it's over. <laughs> uh, well, not even, not even that actually. It's the part of why I find comfort in it is because the Book of Revelation, in its because it's apocalyptic literature, is very uncomfortable when it's not rooted in something that feels more tangible and real. And having read through some of like Gnostic writings and secret knowledge and things like that, it can feel at times when you're reading the book of Revelation, you're reading it, you kind of go, man, John is really edging on this. And then all of a sudden when you start kind of connecting it to historical stuff, for me, why it feels more comfortable is it feels more grounded. Mm. Oh, so this wasn't just numerology. 
This wasn't just throwing out a number here. This was done with an intention to speak something into a time where if I were to just write Nero, people, people's, people's heads are already rolling. Now they're going to really be, you know, now they're really going to be rolling. So yeah. anyway, but yeah, um, so I, this was the, always the school of thought that I was taught. But those with, three being the same? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Have you put that argument around yourself? I've heard it not when I was younger recently. Yeah, it's crazy. His argument makes good sense, though, to me. Yeah. Well, he's, um, you know, this is a series that's pretty connected. He's wearing the same shirt on a lot of, <laughs> a lot of videos, but, you know, he's consistent, you know. He's, he's making a case, or at least proposing, like he said, he's not going to make any dogmatic assertions, but rather he, he's going to say, Here, here's a theory that adds up and makes a lot of sense. So if Nero wasn't the Antichrist and the man of lawlessness, then there, might, there, there would be a, a piece, I think, that wasn't fitting in there, that right. is separate from everything he's kind of been laying out for us. Um, so I, I'm not surprised that he kind of proposes that as a conclusion or as a consideration anyway. Um, but I've done, I've tried to do some reading on this stuff, and very seldom that people commit to it. I mean, you know, Obama's the <laughs> Christ or Oprah or whoever. Right. But uh, um, Oprah, this, this is this is a really uh, compelling yeah. uh, thesis, I think. Yeah. I wonder if um, one of the one of the most compelling arguments he's made thus far is that the canon of scripture was closed before the destruction of the temple. And the destruction of the temple in 70 AD is it's it's actually history that secular people believe too. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. like it's established, nobody doubts it. And the idea that this the world of the Jews came to a close in 70 AD and with it came what well, with it came to a close the canon makes a lot of sense to me. So going along this idea that Antichrist, the man of sin and the beast, took place within that generation that the author of Hebrews says is coming to a close. The old is coming and the new is wearing out, it's being rolled up, it's getting ready to be thrown away. It totally makes sense to me. The idea that after 70 AD, after the destruction of the temple and the and the destruction of Jerusalem and the scattering of, the, basically the destruction of Judaism and the establishment of Christianity as the new um, diaspora, is that the right word, diaspora? Like the idea of just the dispersion of Christians, instead of, whereas before it was the dispersion of Jews, now it's the dispersion of Christians. It all, it seems to, I don't want to just be a Christian based on logic, but, <laughs> but as you read this, it seems like, God is not trying to trick us for his children. He, he closes the ears of those who don't love him, not the ones that do. So this makes sense. Mm-hmm. And it also makes sense in the sense that living through that as a non-believer, not fearing God, you wouldn't see any of this happening. Because you wouldn't believe any of it. And it wouldn't make any, you wouldn't care about it. It would be foolishness to those who are perishing. Yeah. Um, so I, I find it very, very compelling as well. And the Jewish diaspora was 
a negative thing in the sense that in the Old Testament, uh, God had his leaders and prophets endeavor to keep the people together. Mm-hmm. Where, I, and, and correct me if I'm kind of misguided on thinking about this, but the diaspora of the, gen, of the Christians mm-hmm. is a good thing. It's a positive thing. You know, the Romans contributed to it by making such great highways and byways. I mean, for the dissemination and spread of the gospel, yeah. just just the opposite of what was kind of happening with the chosen people of Israel versus now, you know, the, the, the vine of the root, up from the root um, of the olive tree. Sounds like the Tower of Babel all over again. Right. And maybe as a blessing. What, what were you saying, Ron? I would argue a little bit with Lesson's okay. conclusion because... Once the Babylonian captivity ended, a lot of people came back, but a lot of people didn't. You're right. And mm-hmm. you find a Jewish community in many, of many of the cities True. of the Mediterranean yeah. area. Whenever Paul was going to, uh, wherever he went on his missionary journeys, mm-hmm. he went to the Jews first, right. wherever he was at. That's true. Uh, I guess my tack was just that it seemed like it was important for the people to stay together, at least initially. There's, there's truth to that, certainly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in Goshen and then mm-hmm. the, the separation, you know, uh, you're going to go in the promised land and you're, I don't want you intermarrying and doing all these things. Right. So there was this in, endeavor. And, and so... Um, With the holiness, they're being set apart yeah. from the rest, yeah. of the but, rest of the world. But I absolutely agree with what you certainly agree with what you're saying because it's, it's a fact <laughs> it's, it happens right. so. yeah, but both of those are really I think really helpful observations to see that there was some, like unity but then again at the Tower of Babel the unity was not seen as a good thing the unity right. was seen as being rooted in pride like and, dis- and disobedience mm-hmm. yeah um, yeah Something that has struck me for years is the efforts that men will go to to disregard the content of Scripture and, and these three items, Second Thessalonians, Revelation, and, and First John, the First John, uh, all speak of uh, with a a time frame that's very soon, very quick. Mm-hmm. To to make the rapture and all the things surrounding that at the end of time, to me does significant significant damage to the testimony of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to believe that. Yeah, back in the seventies and eighties, took me a long time to get over it. <laughs> right. Yeah, soon doesn't mean soon. Or yeah. must happen quickly means something other than must happen quickly. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely the kind of the natural reading of if you put yourself in the in the in the seat of the first century Christian, you're absolutely right. They're going to read this exactly the way maybe we've been mistakenly reading it. You know, we read ourselves into the story when really mm-hmm. we need to be reading. The history of others in the story. Yeah. And I know, unlike you gentlemen and, and youngsters, I, you know, I'm uh, relatively 
new, I guess, to Reformed theology. So I'm, I'm just beginning now in earnest work to understand covenantal theology versus dispensationalism and what all that means. So, um, you know, all this is all this is really fascinating, and it may I may not be quite ready for it, but I do know that I when when you read when you read the Word of God. Um, from a covenantal perspective, thing, things open up, I think. They, they, they begin to, to make sense. And, and it just reinforces that this isn't about less. Mm-hmm. You know, it ain't. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there's, yeah. so not, not that I was a big isogete or whatever you might call it. Honestly, because I've always, I mean, from the from day one, I just couldn't get enough God. But right. I, I'm it, I'm reading it differently, understanding, you know, there's an understanding that's going along with it. So, in the first uh, video, he, uh, I, I'm not sure I understood him right, but uh, it seemed like he set up kind of a position for dispensationalists which I think has a lot of validity from, from the way I see things anyways. But he was saying something, and, and maybe I didn't understand him right, because I couldn't imagine a Reformed or dispensationalist believing that the Holy Spirit's only role is to be within believers. Yeah. The Holy Spirit has yeah, a ton of things going outside of yeah. the believer. You mean in terms of general grace onto the on the general grace and and where does he come from? Well, look for the wind. It's you don't know where he's coming from. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's just go to um, well, anyways. Genesis one. Well, yeah, just Genesis one. Just the fact that the spirit could be contained in a human. So when their humans are taken up, so somehow that brings that. Yeah, that was that was shocking to me too. I didn't really follow. Yeah, I suppose that could be a straw man, something that dispensations don't really believe. But he also did say it was one of the most bizarre yeah. beliefs he'd ever encountered. So yeah, maybe it's just something that a small group yeah. said or something. He just <laughs> maybe he's out of the common Yeah, right. That's a good point, though, Dad. I, 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 is that I, on tape? Yeah. <laughs> 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 I would like that was, to. That was Frank. I, I think I'm with Frank, and I'd like to hear. Because I haven't really heard a lot of, I mean, I read a lot when I was at Fuller, but it's been a long time, and it would be, I think it'd be really good to hear someone else that has a completely different opinion than, mm. than R.C., just to, you know, because I, I mean, like I said, I think I said a couple weeks ago, when I listen to R.C. Parole, I just like going, uh-huh, uh-huh, <laughs> he just, he's just so knowledgeable, and he mm-hmm. speaks so, I mean, I just feel like there's wisdom coming, which I know, you know, that's, that's too much you know, so I, I think it's easy to be kind of taken in by his logic and his understanding, and mm-hmm. not that he's trying to fool us. But I just I think it would be really good to to hear a perspective that, from someone who who is equally studied and is equally you know informed and is equally good speaker, and just kind of hear that because I because I, I I agree mm-hmm. with Frank now. The more that we listen to him, he's not really giving much evidence at all to the counter. I mean, he's trying to make a point. Mm-hmm. He's not. He's not yeah. trying to lay out information so we can kind of figure things out. He's I saying know. he's trying to make it clear that What's, we need to conclude this. I mean, he's not saying it that way, but it's. Well, I mean, it's a bit much. of a condensation too. I mean, if he, I think if he was doing like a, 
a survey class at right. seminary, <laughs> you would you would maybe I'm I'm RC he's a equal opportunity kind of oh guy. sure yeah, yeah. I, I don't mean I don't yeah. think no I'm not hearing you say that but yeah, I think he's for the sake of time but and I, I kind of I kind of agree there I mean one of the one of the challenges that I can have that I have is that I know how much I don't know right and so there's a lot of there's a lot of relying on somebody explaining to me the Greek like okay I don't know Greek I don't know Latin because I didn't go to Central Commission Christian school. Yes. <laughs> I didn't go there. Uh, so I don't know, you know, so I, there are things that I don't know that um, as, a, as a person, I have to go, okay, there's a limitation to how much I can dig to try yeah, and sure. define a position and why being underneath, under good teaching is so important. But I, I do, I do see, I do see value in, in listening to that other that other side mm-hmm. of it. The challenge that I've had very often when I've like tried to hunt for the other side of the <laughs> argument is I haven't I haven't found too many people who are compelling me from what's written in scripture. Sure. Yeah. It's more of a it, it's more of a a I have a philosophy and I have, a, I have a philosophy that is informing my theology rather than a theology that's informing my philosophy. And sure. that tends to be what ends up happening uh, many times. It's not on every single point that that's the case, but on many points yeah. it does seem to be the, the way that it is. And um, it's been my conviction that as a, as a Christian, I, I do think that your theology should be informing your philosophy. One of the things, if you remember, in the very first lecture of this series, he said is that he's going to be defending and making a case for a minority position. Right. And so he might be giving this position with the assumption that you're familiar for sure. with the majority, the majority position. position. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, not giving it a ton of right. airplay just simply because, oh, I'm arguing against this position, and so you're... Right, no, yeah, I saw it. Which is so weird because I grew up in a, in a like, a... Pentecostal, evangelical, like slain in the spirit kind of church, but this is like the one minority position that, at least in our household, that came out. <laughs> you, you grew up with this. I grew up that this was what I, I nice. this this was the this was the view that we it was kind yeah. of understood at least of, yeah. of how revelation played out. Even though, like I said, we're getting anointed with holy water and bam, <laughs> we get knocked out. This is Sunday, like was. From your family, or was it from the church you're in, or do you uh, even know? It, well, it was the church that I was in, so yeah, okay. uh, it was a pretty evangelical. I used when I was a, a kiddo, I attended uh, uh, Evergreen Christian Center, mm-hmm. which is now Evergreen Christian Community, I think, yeah. uh, up uh, at West Olympia, yeah. and that went through a whole litany of different changes, and then mm-hmm. and then we moved to Calvary Chapel, which was far more. Up in West London, which is far more conservative in that mm-hmm. regard, and they weren't so loosey goosey with uh, the application of spiritual giftings. Yeah, yeah. I I never heard anybody speak in tongues at Calvary. I heard that, that on a I heard people air quotes speaking in tongues uh-huh. weekly. Mm-hmm. Was it interpreted or was it just uh, self interpreted? Yeah, because they because they also had the power gift of interpretation. Of course. <laughs> 
<laughs> which was kind of an interesting, <laughs> which was kind of an interesting application of that. As a seven-year-old, though, that really kind of was like it was weird. It was hard to process that for sure because I didn't like going to kids' church. I wanted to be in the adult service and for the action. A lot more entertainment. <laughs> well, it was different. I mean, we weren't. I mean, we weren't snake handling, but it was. Yeah. It was getting there. <laughs> but you were a partial preterist, though. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, very, yeah. It's in, in all seriousness, for I, well, even before before I got before we uh, Sarah and I got married, I was I, I was I was that, and then it kind of took me hearing somebody say somebody say something to the effect of, I think that after a, uh, a closer examination of Scripture, I think you'll find some different realities of how salvation occurs. It's like, oh, okay. And then I start reading, I'm like, oh, oh, <laughs> yeah, I didn't understand the mechanics of this <laughs> at all. Yeah. Do you go to Calvary Chapel? Not down here, no. So I don't, I don't know how they're, they vary based on affiliation. Yeah, so very, it not, the, it's not a speaking in tongues Calvary Chapel. No, no, well, they, they, they weren't up there either. Right. Yeah, oh, that was, okay, that was every sure. Christian center that was gotcha. doing that. But no, the Calvary Chapel up in well, West Olympia is the one that I used to go to. One of the interesting things that I thought was so compelling with what uh, R.C. was talking about in comparing the Antichrist with the man of sin was in, uh, I think it's 1 John 4, um, he was talking about, uh, well, in 1 John 2, he was talking about, uh, he was looking at the, the word anti meaning against or in place of, it could be either or, um, and against means you're just opposed to Christ, and in place of means that you're setting yourself up as a supplanter or a false Christ. And then the man of sin, who opposes Christ and exalts himself. It just seemed like, man, I'd never made that connection back to, to what Antichrist means. And I suppose it could be uh, other ways in which you would... I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to... My Greek is really weak because I learned it a long time ago, but I'm fairly certain there's even more meanings for anti. Because mm-hmm. in the Greek language, those little pre... Um, there's a lot of small words that have like 30 different definitions and it depends on how it's used in a sentence and you have to look at, I don't know if anti is one, it seems like I remember, when I hear it first said anti, I, I thought of before, but you know, that's, <laughs> so it'd be good, I'd like to go back and look at my Greek um, mm-hmm. textbook and see if there's other definitions or other ways it's used, right. but uh, that'd be interesting, yeah. yeah. Isn't that what Anno Domini is? Or Anno Domini, like before Christ? Uh, That's anti. Yeah, anti. We're talking about anti. Yeah, Anno is different. That's a good connection. Mm -hmm. um, And then I've always been suspicious of numerology. Yeah, right. (laughs) But when I never made the connection between Roman numerals. I don't even think twice about Roman numerals. Of course, Roman numerals. That it's a letter that means a number. And it's like, it's, it's so second nature to me. I wonder if it was just totally second nature to the, the Hebrews and the Greeks at the time. Like they see 666 or 616 and they just immediately read Nero there. Yeah. Um, you know, not read it the way we may read like, um, you know, three eyes on a clock, but read it from the standpoint of like, okay, I'm going to give you a number and if you know how to calculate this, you'll be able to figure out what this is. Right, right. And then they figure it out right away. Mm-hmm. That, that really, <laughs> that was a helpful connection because there is a ton of numerology that I think is valid 
But then I think there's also the whole idea of numerology where you're looking for secret codes throughout the Bible, which I don't want anything to do with that. That just sounds like you're going to get, you know. Well, yeah, in, in a sense, they're within the passage it's telling you to look for a secret code right because it I mean at least you could take that sure. passage to mean that that there's this is so they can mm -hmm. yeah but all throughout scripture there's it's all not. of these consistent numbers that are being used 3 7 12 40 70 it's all over the place and it's there for a reason and but yeah that that can jump. But that's different than yeah, I, numerology. I was, totally a, different than numerology, I was right. in a small group and this guy showed up one night and he spent the whole period just talking about numerology and I was like, Lord protect me from this, you know, in a way. But it just sure. I just thought this is confusing and yeah. almost we had ridiculous. A, we had a guy show up at our church and, and the church we went to in Allensburg and the guy started talking to someone. And they said, "Oh, you should go talk to Thad. He's a math teacher because he was talking to me." <laughs> oh, I was like, yeah, "Yeah, thanks, buddy. That was really." So he's just like giving all these. I, I got a couple of papers I've written. Can I, can I send you those papers? I'm like, I know. I have a funny story about numerology too, where it was not. It's not related to anything in the in scripture, but I was working with a with a client who, um, who after I got done putting the contracted price together, asked if he could, you know, take a look at it, which is a natural thing for people to look at. Mm -hmm. But then I see him pull out a calculator. I'm like, okay, all right. He just wants to make sure that stuff's adding up, right? And, like, he's doing this math that it's not making any sense. And he's like, okay, all right, yeah, we, we can do it. And I was like, well, okay, what, can I just ask what you were doing? And he's like, yeah. If, if He explained, like, he like divided the the number by seven and then did some like different math and eventually yeah. if he arrived at the number three that he knew it was like meant to meant to be uh, yeah it was wow. up the lord and i was like whoa okay all right i am afraid to say that this gentleman while they did end up going under contract their house actually did not get built they ended up having yeah. to buy something existing because mm -hmm. there were some other issues complications yeah <laughs> In the Lord told him not to. The Lord, the Lord that. that cease and desist <laughs> with this, but yeah, no, it was it was it was uh, weird. I mean, it was like yeah, divide by forty, multiply by yeah. seven. Uh, I mean, and eventually he managed to like ramrod the, ramrod this thing to equal three, and I was like, that is well, incredible. Say, oh, you know, actually, I made a mistake there. That's yeah. supposed to be four hundred. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, run your calculations. Yeah. I don't want to. <laughs> I'm kind of curious, Ron, what, what it was that kind of brought, because you said that you were kind of had a dispensational mind, mindset when you were uh, in the 70s and 80s. What was it that kind of brought you out of that? A friend gave me a copy of uh, Rush Jenny's book, uh, Institute. Which one was it? Yes. I'm His main famous book. Right. Who was this? And I read it. Rush, Rush, Rush Dooney. Sorry. And I ahead. read it and it opened my eyes. Mm -hmm. To more than just eschatology, too. I would yeah. assume, right? I'm not familiar with him. Who is he? Hmm? Who, I'm not familiar with him. R.J. Rush Dooney? Yeah. He's, uh, he died in 2001 or something like that. But uh, <clears throat> he was uh, a Reformed pastor. And he always was kind of uh, outside the norm. You don't see that so much when you read his materials, 
but other people just didn't have that much to do with it. Mm. He started an organization called Calcedon, uh, which is still in existence, run by his son. Is he uh, Scottish? Hmm? Is he from Scotland? Sounds like a good Scottish. I'm know. sorry, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't remember if I ever knew. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I've read several other of his books, and I find them all very encouraging and enlightening. I've got a lot of small booklets mm-hmm. that, because uh, he used to be on the radio uh, in California and other areas of the Southwest, mm-hmm. and, uh, and most of those have been transcribed and published now. Yeah. And they're really encouraging uh, devotionals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. We have a book. Your son gave gave me one of his daily devotional books. It's really good, really insightful. It's just short, you know, short, insightful, yeah. applicable things. It's it's, it's a good guide. Yeah, yeah. I would encourage you all to pick up a copy of one of right. the books and read it, even if it's just the small ones. Yeah. Cool. Excellent. Well. We close in prayer? Sure. Les, you want to close us? Sure. Yeah. Heavenly Father, we um, we are before you and we want to give you thanks and praise for this desire that you have put in our hearts. Lord, to know you better and to know you as fully and truly as we can. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit who guides us. Who, Lord, who makes us fearless and, and allows us to not be overly concerned with having to have every single answer, Lord. But just to rely on you and to trust you. That you will guide us and that you will take us to where, where we need to go and in the direction we need to be heading. That our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is already trod the real estate real estate that we need to be on. That our good and gracious King has set the example for us. That our Lord battled Satan with Scripture and the Word of God. That Christ always was and always has been and always will be. Or what comfort we find in that. Lord is um, confounding sometimes as things like revelation and eschatology can be. Lord, we will not be shy about pursuing them and, and pursuing under, deeper understanding. Lord, you are truly that lamp unto our feet, and for that we are eternally grateful. Lord, we thank you for the, the work that you have begun in each, each and every one of your people. We thank you for the promise, promise that you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. Or what an amazing thing and what an awesome thing to consider that heaven will be just a magnitude and an eternity of revelation of your goodness, your gracious, your light, everything, Lord. Lord we pray for our brothers and sisters who um, may not be here this evening with us, Lord. We ask for you to bless them. Lord, I pray that you would bless every family here, represented here tonight, 
that you would protect us all from the evil one. Mm -hmm. And Lord, that you would just continue to uh, drive us and motivate and draw us and, and, and Lord, enlighten us. Mm -hmm. Father, we love you and we thank you. And we pray it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. 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 Amen.